Gracious Lord, you who have come among us to redeem us, open our eyes and our hearts to see again and be captivated and marvel and wonder at your redeeming loving kindness toward us. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them ablaze with that love and passion for you. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray. Amen. May go ahead and be seated. In 2011, a British drama swept the nation here in the U.S., came to the small screen, and captured our imaginations immediately, or many of us anyway. It was called Downton Abbey. Perhaps you heard of it. I will admit that along with all of the other Anglophiles, closeted or uncloseted in our country, I faithfully watched season one as we engaged with the drama of the Crawley family and what would happen in the wake of the untimely demise of their heir apparent, right? But after the tension of season one was resolved and we moved on to season two, I still watched, but I began to wonder. By season three, I had sniffed it out for what it was. This was just a soap opera for the craft beer latte crowd. That's it. That is all it is, right? And so I stopped watching. I was amazed that they went on and made actually six whole seasons of that show. But what I found actually most amazing, even way back in season one, was something that I read, an article that I had read about its popularity. And what I learned from that article is that the version that you and I enjoyed here was not the original version as it was written and actually uh, shown in the UK. See, the original version got much more involved in the intricacies of the property law that was going on that, that drove the tension of season one, at least. And frankly, the writers knew, Americans, let's just be honest, we have much shorter attention spans. We're not going to understand the intricacies of turn-of-the-century English property law, and we're not going to be held and gripped by that, even if Tony were to read it to us. Or, or if it was you know, presented to us in the lilting Yorkshire of Anna Bates, right? And so we got this sort of Cliff's Notes version. Well, this morning, as we come into the book of Ruth, chapter 4, going to do something of the same. We're going to sort of gloss over some of the legal proceedings that actually form the majority of the prose of what we read in Ruth, chapter 4. If you're just joining us this morning, you have joined us for the dramatic finale of this four-part short story that an anonymous writer has given to us. And this morning we find, as we heard, Boaz in court to sort out the property legalities. Our hero, Boaz, does just as Naomi had predicted. And first thing, he goes out to the city gate, the place where all matters of import and and legality were decided with the village elders. In chapter 3, we saw Naomi gamble on the fact that Boaz was a man of integrity. 
who would be enticed by the visit, the late night visit of Ruth, just enough to pique his interest in marrying her, but who would control himself and who would ultimately do the right thing and uphold her honor. And her gamble worked, is what we saw in chapter 3. And that scene ended with Boaz hot to trot on marrying Ruth, but also committed to doing it in the right way, to going about it properly. But as we come to chapter 4, we begin to feel like maybe Boaz's integrity will be the very thing that derails the love story. Because in the midst of that steamy night's time setting, we were introduced to a plot twist. There's actually another more eligible kinsman redeemer available in Bethlehem. And if this unnamed, actually the Hebrew literally refers to him as so-and-so, if this so-and-so will do the job, Boaz is out of the running. But Boaz, Boaz is very clever. If this other man, well, first, I mean, he, he fulfills all righteousness, and he certainly, he, he does, he wants to seek the justice deserved by this kinsman redeemer. And so he seeks his good, he seeks his justice But while Boaz pursues righteousness for everyone involved, he, not unlike his would-be mother-in-law, exercises all the cunning of a fox to leverage every advantage to bring about the outcome he and Ruth both desire. He finds this other near kinsman right away. And then Boaz calls together a quorum of, of village elders because according to Jewish legal law at the time, all legal proceedings needed to be witnessed by at least a minimum number of elders in order to uh, answer any questions, adjudicate any differences of opinion, and most importantly, to attest later to the proceedings, right? But here's where Boaz's wits come into play. He first approaches this, this kinsman, probably a close cousin, about the property that's at stake. That's all he talks about, the property at stake, He makes no mention of his real intention, Ruth, and marrying her. He simply says, in verse 3 of chapter 4, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Never play poker with Boaz. He hides his real interest and comes to the table apparently simply wanting to talk about a real straightforward, simple real estate transaction. Naomi's selling her land, presumably to try to make ends meet for the final chapter of her life. And it was this unnamed redeemer's privilege to offer, essentially, first right of refusal. And at first pass, he goes for it. First pass, he goes for it. To Boaz's question, he responds, I will redeem it. Again, the storyteller has us on the edge of our seat. That's not the way the story is supposed to end. This is a love story. Boaz is supposed to get the girl. But it's not over till it's over. And Boaz has an ace up his sleeve. Says, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Say what? All of a sudden, the proposal is looking radically different from what this kinsman redeemer had originally agreed to. One of my favorite mottos has always been, if it seems too good to be true, it is. And that is certainly what this guy is learning. When it was just about buying Naomi's land to keep it in the clan, that was one thing. That was a solid investment on his part. That was actually just prudent financial sense. Naomi's a widow beyond childbearing years. If he acquires that land, he will presumably profit from its growth. It's, it's uh, you know, the grain that he can grow on it over years to come. And then it'll actually just become a part of the parcel that he gets to pass on as his inheritance to his own children. But now, Boaz throws Ruth into the mix, a worthy woman at peak childbearing age, and he doubles down on the obligation to produce an heir to Naomi's line through her daughter. Whoa, hold on a minute. That means this kinsman is now also committing to take care of two more women, at least one more child eventually, and he'll have to divide what property he already owns with this new potential heir should he produce one. Too rich for my blood is what he ends up saying. He says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He reiterates twice, I cannot redeem it. He's not saying I don't want to. He's not saying I'm unwilling to, you know, uh, hold up the, the obligations of a kinsman redeemer. He's saying this would not be financially prudent for my family as it already exists. And everyone respects that. I just can't do it. You do it. And Boaz jumps right up to that plate. He says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now there is the satisfying, happy ending to our love story, right? The rest is all, de, excuse me, denouement. But note a couple of things about what we've read so far. First, see how that theme of God's loving kindness being expressed through the kindness, generosity, and love, and faithfulness of God's people comes to its head with this exchange between these kinsmen and redeemers. The question of whether or not Ruth and Naomi are going to be provided for is already resolved at this point. It's just a matter of who's going to do it. That too is a part of God's plan of provision for the widows among his people. Land, inheritance, and family name were all important in this culture. So God, in his gracious law, made a way for the childless to retain their family's land and even pass on their family name through this kinsman redeemer. Another relative, uh, the scriptures dictate, it could be a brother, it could be an uncle, it could be even a cousin. There were other obligations of such a redeemer enumerated as well. Not just buying back land, but even buying a kinsman out of slavery if he had to sell himself into slavery to make ends meet. There was also an obligation to punish 
a murder should someone attack your kin. But all of these practices were really enactments, representations in the daily life of Israel of who the God of Israel is and what he had done for his people. I'll say it again. All of these expectations of the kinsman redeemer were merely a reflection of who the God of Israel is and what he had done for his people. God was the redeemer who had rescued his people out of slavery. It was God who gave the people their land as an inheritance, the land that he had promised to their forefather Abraham. It was God who acted to deliver his people from all of their enemies while they wandered in the wilderness, while they gleaned his own heavenly bread, by the way. And it was God who gave them victory over their enemies in claiming their inheritance. God shows himself to be the redeemer of his people. And building expectations for kinsmen redeemers into the the governance of his people was a tangible expression of his redeeming work. God is a God of rescue and redemption. Not, Not all slavery is physical bondage, brothers and sisters. Some of you are here this morning mindful of the fact that you need rescue. We need to be redeemed. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed and rescued from all sorts of bondage. Addictions. Compulsions. The need to be right. The need to do more. The need to be something else. The desire for food, drink, money, power, sex, etc. Name it. We all have areas of our life where we are in bondage. But what we come face to face with here in this story of Boaz and Ruth is that God is the God of rescue. The God of redemption. He longs to deliver you wherever you're in need of deliverance. And all it takes is letting him in. Lord, I need your rescue. Come to my aid. Now, appreciate for a moment, though, what Boaz has just agreed to. He spells it out for the other would-be redeemer. This is not just a quick, clean, advantageous land transaction. It's not even a the-hero-gets-the-girl-in-the-end story. This comes with responsibility, taking on the care not only of a wife, but a mother-in-law as well, and also, most significantly, significantly producing an heir, but not an heir for himself, not an heir to his own family name, but an heir for the name of Malon, Elimelech's family. The child that Boaz may potentially have with Ruth, and which he does indeed have in the end, is technically not his own rightful heir. This is the part of the love story that, of course, should elicit a little bit of that aww moment, right? But it's not just for the love of Ruth that Boaz does this. It's also for the good of Naomi and obedience to what he believed to be the call of God on his life, even though it comes at a certain amount of cost. Again, all this certainly points back to the character of the God who had done so much for and frankly put up with so much from his ancient people. 
but it also points forward to the Redeemer who is yet to come. God himself taking on human flesh and at great personal cost, his own suffering, his own death, in order to lead us, not just Israel, but lead all of humanity out of bondage. What Boaz has done here points forward to his own descendant in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. The one who came to deliver and redeem us from slavery. The slavery of death through his resurrection. And by his perfect sinless life and spotless atoning death to pay the debt incurred by our own rebellion and our continual missing of the mark. This is what we celebrate every Sunday. This is what we celebrate when we come together. That's why we call it a celebration of the Eucharist. That's why my role is, you'll see it pretty in your book, the celebrate. Because we're here to celebrate the rescue of God through the work of Jesus. Each week at the table, I pray, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son into the world for our salvation. You came and redeemed us. You came and rescued us. Each week we are led by our liturgy to celebrate and thank God for redemption, for rescue. And it's that celebration of thanksgiving that prepares us to go out and to live in thanksgiving and to live lives as redeemed people. Well, in chapter 4, we see a couple other tidy tying up of loose ends as well. First, we see the definitive answer to Naomi's complaint way back in chapter 1. She came back to Bethlehem, and as the women are going, hey, isn't that Naomi? She says, no, 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 don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. She says, for I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Actually, the answer to that statement was given already back in chapter 3. Because when Ruth was sent home by Boaz at daybreak, he says to her, hey, bring me, bring me the garment that you're wearing. Let's fill that thing up. And he fills it up with six measures of grain, which is about the equivalent of a very large dog food bag from Costco. It's it like 50 pounds. Could even be up to 75 pounds. She says something about Ruth, by the way, that she just totes that on home. But... Uh, but anyway, he gives her about 50 to 75 pounds of grain. And it wasn't until Ruth explained it to Naomi that we understand why he sent that with her. It wasn't just as sort of a convenient cover-up to, well, nobody should know that you were here, so if you're walking home, you need to be like carrying something or whatever. It might have been part of it. But he explains. Boaz loaded her up with the grain, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. Ruth is saying this, relating it to Naomi. He gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. You must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. This was a significant gesture, a sort of symbolic down payment on what Boaz intended to do, which was see the filling up of Naomi's emptiness. See, ultimately, the book bears the name of Ruth, But really, it's actually a story about Naomi. It's primarily a story about Naomi. 
coming back empty and being filled up yet again. Verse 13, we have the true climax of the story because Boaz and Ruth do conceive a son, Obed, an heir. But who celebrates? The women celebrate Naomi. The women of Bethlehem declare to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Which it is. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. In the ancient Semitic mind, this was the ultimate complete reversal of Naomi's fortunes. Naomi's family land, and more important, her family name, have been preserved. Despite all that she's lost, the emptiness that she has experienced, to the ancient way of thinking, she received it all back and then some. Not only is Naomi herself provided for, but Boaz and Ruth have ensured that her family's name will live on. This is the final and definitive answer to the question of the book. Yes, God truly is kind. His hasid, his loving kindness, really does endure forever. That doesn't mean that all will be rainbows and ponies, but even when our lives take tragic turns, as they sometimes do, God's goodness and loving kindness are beyond reproach. The final theme that we see wrapped up with a bow is the inclusion of Ruth in the plan and purpose of God. We're introduced to Ruth as a foreign and, frankly, pretty much illicit, prohibited foreign wife. God was very clear in his law to his children, do not marry women from the Moabites. And Elimelech's two sons go and do just that. So here's this Moabitess, and that's how she's spoken of in the early chapters of the book. And yet she declared in chapter 1 her desire to make the God of Naomi, the God of Israel, her God. And we've seen how immediately that was enough for God to include her, to bring her in, to cover her under his wing of protection, under his hesed, his loving kindness. Then we saw in chapter 2 how the community of God's people began to accept her. Because again, they they still talk about her as that Moabite, but then they tack onto it immediately, Naomi's daughter-in-law. Even at, at one point, Naomi's daughter. They're beginning to accept her. She's beginning to be brought in. Then we saw in chapter 3 the way Boaz accepts her as a worthy woman, a marriageable prospect on the same footing in his eyes of any native-born Israelite woman. And now finally we see the completion of this inclusion. For not only is Ruth welcomed into Boaz's home, not only is she fully welcomed into the community of Bethlehem, a small miracle in and of itself, she has now become a part of the royal dynasty of the kings of God's people. The end of this story is this family tree, starting verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's the punchline of the whole story. Not only is Ruth welcomed into the small town community of Bethlehem, she has now become a significant part of the lineage of God's chosen line of kings. And as such, let's step back and draw these themes together. She becomes the earthly ancestor of the human incarnation of our Redeemer God. A great, 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 you get the idea, grandmother of Jesus himself. Great David's greater son. What a picture of the welcoming God of the universe who takes an outsider, draws her in, and sets her with the princes of his people. A God who has gone to extraordinary lengths to redeem us from rebellion and death, and who sets us, like Ruth, in that same royal lineage. The same God who is ready and willing to rescue you from your own personal bonds. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we praise you and thank you for this portrait of your loving kindness. We thank you that you are the God who measures out, as we read this morning in the gospel, who measures out and returns to us a full portion, packed down and overflowing. Lord, I pray for those among your people this morning who feel like they are not experiencing that. Maybe identify more with Naomi in chapter 1. Call me bitter, for I've had everything stripped away. Well, for that, sister or brother, I pray that you will rekindle in their heart hope. Not hope in their circumstances changing, not hope that things might be different tomorrow, but hope in you. the God of redemption and rescue. For all of us, I pray that we would fully engage with the work of thanksgiving, even as we gather now at your table. It's in your name, our Lord, our God, that we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.